Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Chapter 33 The Speck Snyder Concerning the officers of the whalecraft, this seems as good a place as any to set down a little domestic peculiarity on shipboard, arising from the existence of the harpooner class of officers, a class unknown, of course, in any other marine than the whale fleet. The large importance attached to the harpooner's vocation is evinced by the fact that originally, in the old Dutch fishery, two centuries or more ago, the command of a whale-ship was not wholly lodged in the person now called the captain, but was divided between him and an officer called the specksnyder. Literally, this word means fat-cutter. Usage, however, in time, made it equivalent to chief harpooner. In those days, the captain's authority was restricted to the navigation and general management of the vessel— while over the whale-hunting department and all its concerns, the Specksnyder, or Chief Harpooner, reigned supreme. In the British Greenland fishery, under the corrupted title of Speck Seener, this old Dutch official is still retained, but his former dignity is sadly abridged. At present he ranks simply as senior harpooner, and as such is but one of the captain's more inferior subalterns, Nevertheless, as upon the good conduct of the harpooners and success of a whaling voyage largely depends, and since in the American fishery he is not only an important officer in the boat, but under certain circumstances, night watches on a whaling ground, the command of the ship's deck is also his. Therefore, the grand political maxim of the sea demands that he should nominally live apart from the men before the mast, and be in some way distinguished as their professional superior, though always by them familiarly regarded as their social equal. Now, the grand distinction drawn between officer and man at sea is this. The first lives aft, the last forward. Hence, in whale ships and merchantmen alike, the mates have their quarters with the captain, and so too in most of the American whalers, the harpooners, are lodged in the after part of the ship, that is to say, they take their meals in the captain's cabin and sleep in a place indirectly communicating with it. Though the long period of a southern whaling voyage, by far the longest of all voyages now or ever made by man, the peculiar perils of it, and the community of interest prevailing among company, all of whom, high or low, depend for their profits not upon fixed wages, but upon their common luck, together with their common vigilance, intrepidity, and hard work, though all these things do in some cases tend to beget a less rigorous discipline than in merchantmen generally. Yet never mind how much like an old Mesopotamian family these whalemen may, in some primitive instances, live together. For all that, the punctilious externals, at least, of the quarterdeck are seldom materially relaxed, and in no instance done away. 
Indeed, many are the Nantucket ships in which you will see the skipper parading his quarter-deck with an elated grandeur not surpassed in any military navy. Nay, extorting almost as much outward homage as if he wore the imperial purple and not the shabbiest of pilot cloth. And though, of all men, the moody captain of the Pequod was the least given to that sort of shallowest assumption, and though the only homage he ever exacted was implicit, instantaneous obedience, though he required no man to remove the shoes from his feet ere stepping upon the quarter-deck, and though there were times when, owing to peculiar circumstances, connected with events hereafter to be detailed, he addressed them in unusual terms, whether in condescension or in terror, or otherwise. Yet even Captain Ahab was by no means unobservant of the paramount forms and usages of the sea. Nor, perhaps, will it fail to be eventually perceived that behind those forms and usages, as it were, he sometimes masked himself, incidentally making use of them for other and more private ends than they were legitimately intended to subserve. That certain sultanism of his brain, which had otherwise in a good degree remained unmanifested, through those forms that same sultanism became incarnate in an irresistible dictatorship. For be a man's intellectual superiority what it will— it can never assume the practical, available supremacy over other men without the aid of some sort of external arts and entrenchments, always in themselves more or less paltry and base. This it is, that forever keeps God's true princes of the empire from the world's hustings, and leaves the highest honors that this heir can give to those men who become famous more through their infinite inferiority to the choice hidden handful of the divine inert than through their undoubted superiority over the dead level of the mass. Such large virtue lurks in these small things when extreme political superstitions invest them, that in some royal instances, even to idiot imbecility, they have imparted potency, but when, as in the case of Nicholas the Tsar, the ringed crown of geographical empire encircles an imperial brain, then the plebeian herds crouch abased before the tremendous centralization. Nor will the tragic dramatist, who would depict mortal indomitableness in its fullest sweep and direct swing, ever forget a hint, incidentally so important in his art, as the one now alluded to. But Ahab, my captain, still moves before me in all his Nantucket grimness and shagginess. And in this episode, touching emperors and kings, I must not conceal that I have only to do with a poor old whale-hunter like him, and therefore all outward majestical trappings and housings are denied me. O oh, Ahab, what shall be grand in thee? It must needs be plucked it from the skies and dived for in the deep, and featured in the unbodied air. Chapter 34 The Cabin Table It is noon, and Doughboy, the steward, thrusting his pale loaf of bread face from the cabin scuttle, announces dinner to his lord and master, who, sitting in the lee quarter boat, has just been taking an observation of the sun, and is now mutely reckoning the latitude on the smooth, medallion-shaped tablet 
reserved for that daily purpose on the upper part of his ivory leg. From his complete inattention to the tidings, you would think that Moody Ahab had not heard his menial. But presently, catching hold of the mizzen shrouds, he swings himself to the deck, and in an even, unexhilarated voice, saying, "'Dinner, Mr. Starbuck,' disappears into the cabin." When the last echo of his sultan's step has died away, and Starbuck, the first emir, has every reason to suppose that he is seated, then Starbuck rouses from his quietude, takes a few turns along the planks, and after a grave peep into the binnacle, says with some touch of pleasantness, "'Dinner, Mr. Stubb,' and descends the scuttle. The second emir lounges about the rigging a while, and then slightly shaking the main brace, to see whether it will be all right with that important rope. He likewise takes up the old burden, and with a rapid dinner, Mr. Flask, follows after his predecessors. But the third emir, now seeing himself all alone on the quarter-deck, seems to feel relieved from some curious restraint, for tipping all sorts of knowing winks in all sorts of directions, and kicking off his shoes, he strikes into a sharp but noiseless squall of a hornpipe right over the Grand Turk's head, and then, by a dexterous slight, pitching his cap up into the mizzen top for a shelf, he goes down rollicking so far at least as he remains visible from the deck, reversing all other processions by bringing up the rear with music. But ere stepping into the cabin doorway below, he pauses, ships a new face altogether, and then, independent, hilarious little flask, enters King Ahab's presence in the character of Objectus, or the slave. It is not the least among the strange things bred by the intense artificialness of sea usages that while in the open air of the deck some officers will, upon provocation, bear themselves boldly and defyingly enough towards their commander. Yet, ten to one, let those very officers the next moment go down to their customary dinner in that same commander's cabin, and straightway their inoffensive and humble air towards him as he sits at the head of the table. This is marvelous, sometimes most comical. Wherefore this difference? A problem? Perhaps not. To have been Belshazzar, king of Babylon— and to have been Belshazzar, not haughtily but courteously, therein certainly must have been some touch of mundane grandeur. But he who in the rightly regal and intelligent spirit presides over his own private dinner-table of invited guests, that man's unchallenged power and dominion of individual influence for the time, that man's royalty of state transcends Belshazzar's, for Belshazzar was not the greatest." Who has but once dined his friends has tasted what it is to be Caesar. It is a witchery of social czarship which there is no withstanding. Now, if to this consideration you superadd the official supremacy of a shipmaster, then by inference you will derive the cause of that peculiarity of sea life just mentioned. Over his ivory inland table, Ahab presided like a mute, maned, sea lion on the white coral beach, surrounded by his warlike but still deferential cubs. In his own proper turn, each officer waited to be served. They were as little children before Ahab, 
and yet, in Ahab, there seemed not to lurk the smallest social arrogance. With one mind, their intent eyes all fastened upon the old man's knife as he carved the chief dish before him. I do not suppose that for the world they would have profaned that moment with the slightest observation, even upon so neutral a topic as the weather. No, and when reaching out his knife and fork between which the slice of beef was locked, Ahab thereby motioned Starbuck's plate towards him. The mate received his meat as though receiving alms, and cut it tenderly, and a little started if, perchance, the knife grazed against the plate and chewed it noiselessly and swallowed it, not without circumspection. For, like the coronation banquet at Frankfurt, where the German emperor profoundly dines with the seven imperial electors, so these cabin meals were somehow solemn meals, eaten in awful silence. And yet, at table, old Ahab forbade not conversation. Only he himself was dumb. What a relief it was to choking stub when a rat made a sudden racket in the hold below. And poor little Flask, he was the youngest son and little boy of this weary family party. His were the shin bones of the saline beef, his would have been the drumsticks. For Flask, to have presumed to help himself, this must have seemed to him tantamount to larceny in the first degree. Had he helped himself at that table, doubtless, never more would he have been able to hold his head up in this honest world. Nevertheless, strange to say, Ahab never forbade him. And had Flask helped himself, the chances were Ahab had never so much as noticed it. Least of all, did Flask presume to help himself to butter. Whether he thought the owners of the ship denied it to him, on account of its clotting his clear, sunny complexion, or whether he deemed that, on so long a voyage in such marketless waters, butter was at a premium, and therefore is not for him, a subaltern. However it was, Flask, alas, was a butterless man. Another thing. Flask was the last person down at the dinner, and Flask is the first man up. Consider, for hereby Flask's dinner was badly jammed in point of time. Starbuck and Stubb both had the start of him, and yet they also have the privilege of lounging in the rear. If Stubb even, who is but a peg higher than Flask, happens to have but a small appetite, and soon shows symptoms of concluding his repast, then Flask must bestir himself, he will not get more than three mouthfuls that day. For it is against holy usage for Stubb to precede Flask to the deck. Therefore, it was that Flask once admitted in private that ever since he had arisen to the dignity of an officer, from that moment he had never known what it was to be otherwise than hungry, more or less. For what he ate did not so much relieve his hunger as keep it immortal in him. Peace and satisfaction, thought Flask, have forever departed from my stomach. I am an officer, but how I wish I could fish a bit of old-fashioned beef in the forecastle, as I used to when I was before the mast. There's the fruits of promotion now. There's the vanity of glory. There's the insanity of life. Besides, if it were so that any mere sailor of the Pequod had a grudge against Flask, in Flask's official capacity, all that sailor had to do in order to obtain ample vengeance 
was to go aft at dinner time and get a peep at Flask through the cabin skylight sitting silly and dumbfoundered before awful Ahab. Now, Ahab and his three mates formed what may be called the first table in the Pequod's cabin. After their departure taking place in inverted order to their arrival, the canvas cloth was cleared, or rather was restored to some hurried order by the pallid steward. And then the three harpooners were bidden to the feast. They made a sort of temporary servants' hall of the high and mighty cabin. In strange contrast to the hardly tolerable constraint and nameless invisible domineerings of the captain's table was the entire carefree license and ease, the almost frantic democracy of those inferior fellows, the harpooners. While their masters, the mates, seemed afraid of the sound of the hinges of their own jaws, the harpooners chewed their food with such a relish that there was a report to it. They dined like lords, They filled their bellies like Indian ships all day loading with spices. Such appetites had Queequeg and Tashtigo that to fill out the vacancies made by the previous repast, often the pale doughboy was fain to bring on a great barren of salt junk, seemingly quarried out of the solid ox. And if he were not lively about it, if he did not go with a nimble hop, skip, and jump— then Tashtigo had an ungentlemanly way of accelerating him by darting a fork at his back, harpoon-wise. And once Dagoo, seized with a sudden humor, assisted Doughboy's memory by snatching him up bodily and thrusting his head into a great empty wooden trencher, while Tashtigo, knife in hand, began laying out the circle preliminary to scalping him. He was naturally a very nervous, shuddering sort of little fellow, this bread-faced steward, the progeny of a bankrupt baker and a hospital nurse. And what would the standing spectacle of the black, terrific Ahab and the periodical, tumultuous visitations of these three savages? Doughboy's whole life was one continual lip-quiver. Commonly, after seeing the harpooners furnished with all the things they demanded, he would escape from their clutches into his little pantry adjoining and fearfully peep out at them through the blinds of its door, till all was over. It was a sight to see Queequeg seated over against Tashtigo, opposing his filed teeth to the Indians. Crosswise to them, Dagoo seated on the floor, for a bench would have brought his hearse-plumed head to the low car lines, at every motion of his colossal limbs making the low cabin framework to shake, as when an African elephant goes passenger in a ship. But for all this, the great man was wonderfully abstemious, not to say dainty. It seemed hardly possible that by such comparatively small mouthfuls he could keep up the vitality diffused through so broad, baronial, and superb a person. But doubtless this noble man fed strong and drank deep of the abounding element of air, and through his dilated nostrils snuffed in the sublime life of the world's. Not by beef or by bread are giants made or nourished. But Queequeg had a mortal, barbaric smack of the lip in eating, an ugly sound enough, so much so, that the trembling doughboy almost looked to see whether any marks of teeth lurked in his own lean arms. And when he would hear Tashtigo singing out for him to produce himself, that his bones might be picked, the simple-witted steward all but shattered the crockery hanging round him in the pantry, by his sudden fits of the palsy. 
nor did the whetstone which the harpooners carried in their pockets, for their lances and other weapons, and with which whetstones at dinner they would ostentatiously sharpen their knives. That grating sound did not at all tend to tranquilize poor Doughboy. How could he forget that in his island days, Queequeg, for one, must certainly have been guilty of some murderous, convivial indiscretions? Alas, Doughboy, hard fares the white waiter who waits upon cannibals. Not a napkin should he carry on his arm, but a buckler. In good time, though, to his great delight, the three salt-sea warriors would rise and depart. To his credulous, fable-mongering ears, all their martial bones jiggling in them at every step, like more scimitars and scabbards. But though these barbarians dined in the cabin and nominally lived there, still being anything but sedentary in their habits, they were scarcely ever in it, except at mealtimes, and just before sleeping time, when they passed through it to their own peculiar quarters. In this one matter, Ahab seemed no exception to most American whale captains, who as a set rather inclined to the opinion that by rights the ship's cabin belongs to them, and that it is by courtesy alone that anybody else is, at any time, permitted there. So that in real truth, the mates and harpooners of the Pequod might more properly be said to have lived out of the cabin than in it. For when they did enter it, it was something as a street door enters a house, turning inwards for a moment, only to be turned out the next, and as a permanent thing residing in the open air. Nor did they lose much hereby. In the cabin was no companionship. Socially, Ahab was inaccessible. Though nominally included in the census of Christendom, he was still an alien to it. He lived in the world, as the last of the grizzly bears lived in settled Missouri. And as when spring and summer had departed, that wild Logan of the woods, burying himself in the hollow of a tree, lived out the winter there, sucking his own paws. So, in his inclement, howling old age, Ahab's soul, shut up in the cave trunk of his body, there fed upon the sullen paws of its gloom. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.